The reading today is Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths they claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, then understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let me have my welcome. If we're not met, uh, my name is Matt Fuller, uh, senior pastor here. And uh, you join us. We're spending a month uh, in uh, the book of Psalms, 73. Then we're going to do 74, and then 75, and then 76 uh, over the next month. And uh, so let me lead us in prayer as we begin looking at these together. Our great God and Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word. The human heart has not changed over the centuries, over the millennia but nor have you. And so as we come and look at the testimony of this man, would you speak to us, reminding us of your goodness, of your security, of your steadfastness, so that we would find our refuge, our safety, our security, our joy, our portion, our inheritance, would we find these things in you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I hope you won't be too shocked uh, when I observe that doubts are very normal in the Christian life. I think at some point or other, every member of staff here certainly has come into my office at some point and shut the door and said, can I just tell you, I'm, I, I'm having doubts. Occasionally, is it real? Is it true? Does God exist? More commonly, have I wasted my time on this? I think it's true, but I, I've given so much to this. Have I made a mistake on that front? That is not abnormal in the Christian life. A couple of weeks ago, on a, a Monday morning, I, I was met with uh, Phil, who's up here earlier, and uh, I'd said, uh, we're exchanging things to pray for. Will you pray for me? I've had a weekend with uh, my peers, sort of university and uh, that sort of gang. And, um, you know, the gap has grown quite a bit now. And so I look at some of them and, and what they're earning and the holidays they're going on and the corporate perks of uh, their employers and I think to myself, oh, I've made some significant choices in life and there's a cost to them. And uh, this morning I'm feeling a bit grumpy about that. <laughs> Pray for me. Now, I don't know, you may think a little less of me for that, but I think that most people have moments, periods of doubt in the Christian life. And in one sense, how can you not because when you look at this world, there is injustice in it. And there are those who are, well, in the language of Psalm 73, wicked, who, who do pretty well, actually. Uh, they're affluent, they've got power, they've got influence, uh, and they're pretty mean-spirited to those uh, who have much less. And you think, well, how does that work? How do you allow that? How is that fair? Uh, I may slightly overstate it, but in one sense I'd say if as a Christian or not a Christian believer or not, you, you, you never have doubts over the existence of God, then I'd say you've never really looked at our world because at times it's very unfair. And so I think it's a very normal experience that this writer, Asaph, talks about. Let me take a step back. As I said, this, uh, this month we're going to uh, spend on four consecutive psalms, 73 through 6. And uh, they begin, what's titled here, if you look down your Bible, is book 3. Some will know the, the, the book of Psalms, 150, is made up of five different books, Psalms 1 and 2, largely the prayers of David. Uh, so, uh, book 3 is a bit different. The first 12 are all Psalms of Asaph. They're all written by him. I'm not entirely sure there's three Asaphs that could be in the Bible. I'm not sure which one it is. But book three is sometimes known as the dark book of the Psalms. It's probably not a great title, actually. But what you do get in this book three, 73 to 90, are lots of questions. Lots of complaints, laments, but certainly questions here. They are here to help us express a bewilderment of God's ways in the world. Why would you do it like that? How come he is so affluent when he's so despicable? They help us express our bewilderment and come through the other side 
of it. So Psalm 73 here, we're told it's of Asaph, as these uh, first 12 are, and it's the account of one man going through doubts. I wasn't sure I was going to keep going as a Christian. And why is that? Well, he's experiencing some form of oppression. So there's a, there's a group of wicked people here. So verse eight, they scoff, they speak with malice, with arrogance, they threaten uh, oppression. Verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted. So uh, there are a, a ruthless group in his society, in his, that they're giving him and others, his community, a hard time. Now that in one sense is the content, but it's not the point or the focus of the psalm. The focus is the questions that the fact that the wicked are doing so well, that's what gets him. Jesus, it's not the fact that there are wicked people around. It is that, why is it that God allows them to do so well? And I'm trying my best to be a believer, and life is pretty hard. It's the issue, the question, the doubt. It's what gets him. That's the issue of the psalm. And uh, he tells us really uh, very early on in verse two or verse three, it is the envy of those who are wicked that causes him to doubt. Okay. That's the issue here in Psalm 73. Here is a Christian believer who looks on those who are not following the Lord, and in fact, some of them are pretty unpleasant. And he says, I envy them. And it's what causes him to doubt. Let me, let me uh, begin. Uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, verse one is the, uh, the sort of summary statement over it all. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's the sort of title, as you will, of, of, of the psalm. Uh, and that's where he's going to end up at the end of the psalm. But it's not a trite little phrase. He has to work very hard to get there. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I really, there are two halves to the psalm, and uh, I've tried to, uh, let me try and summarize it this way and explain why I do so a little later on. But uh, he stared at the carefree wicked, verses 2 to 14, and that's the problem. Okay. He stared at the carefree wicked, verses 2 to 14. And then the second half, he stared at the truth of God, 15 to 28. Now, I'll explain that as we go through, but really, there's a problem. He stared at the carefree wicked, the solution. He stared at the truth of God, 15 to 28. Let's work through the two halves. First, then, he he stared at the carefree wicked, verses 2 to 14. So here's his experience, verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Almost slipped, almost given up. Why? Uh, Well, verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of of the wicked. So it's not just that there's injustice in society. He's honest enough to say, actually, I was jealous of what was taking place. He envied the wicked. Well, that's the language. That's how the, the, the translators have gone for it. That's quite a strong way of translating the, the Hebrew word. You, you, it's probably a spectrum. You, you could say wicked. You could just say faithless or unbeliever. It's only really context that allows you to determine how strongly you're going to translate it. So don't get stumbling. that He's calling everyone who's an unbeliever wicked. Well, some of them are really very wicked. Some of them are just faithless or, or not believers. 
but he uses one term for everyone. But he says in verse three, look, I was trying to live life as a believer, but I looked around and those who laughed at me for being a Christian, their lives looked easier. They seemed to be going great. They had no hassles and I envied them. And it comes because verse three, he saw the prosperity of the wicked, slightly weak perhaps. Uh, I kept on seeing the prosperity of the wicked or I kept on looking at the prosperity of the wicked or as I've simplified it, I stared at them. I didn't just look and go, oh, that's not fair and look away. I looked and I looked until I looked at those who were uh, perhaps immoral uh, and I thought, but their lives are good. And I stared at them until it really irritated me. And I thought, how can that be? And verses four to 12 describe what he saw when he looked at the faithless, the carefree people. We're not told the possible setting for those is uh, when um, uh, the exiles have returned to Jerusalem, uh, the, the city and the temple are being rebuilt under uh, Nehemiah, Ezra. Uh, possibly that, there are lots of taunts taking place, we're not entirely certain. But here's, in one sense, a description of some of the affluent in London. So verses four and five, life is good. Verse four, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. No waiting in queues for these people. It's always first-class travel, of course. No ailments for them. Uh, they read about NHS waiting lists and think, what are these things? Uh, why don't people all go to Harley Street? I don't really understand. Uh, no comprehension of a waiting list. N no one here needs to look at a bank statement and think, oh, what's my account like? Do I, how am I going to squeeze through till next month? They've got no problems. Life is good, verses four and five. And so they're proud, six and seven. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Well, they view most people just with disdain because they operate in a bubble. Verses eight and nine, so they mock. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. They scoff. So, you know, these are people with the best lawyers. They can bully. They can intimidate. Verse nine, they laugh at the idea of there being a God. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. There's no God. And verses 10 and 11, lots of people do look upon them and approve of them. Verse 10, therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. That's just a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't really translate. It's not like, oh, look, your life is, is good. I'll drink a whole pool of water. It's not, you know, that would be a weird thing to do. It's uh, they raise a glass to them, that sort of sense to it. There's approval. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? I can do what I want. And of course, sometimes you do get the, the, the sort of the newsworthy, obnoxious example. I don't know him personally, of course, but a, a Philip Green seems to sort of fit that sort of category, uh, a lifestyle of a multimillionaire on his luxurious yacht. I'll buy a new lot, uh, excuse me, I'll buy a new yacht by emptying out the pension pots of ordinary workers on their 26,000 pounds a year or whatever it may be. I'll just take their future, I'll take their retirement. I'll have another yacht, because who needs three uh, when you can have another one? 
They're the obvious examples in one sense of, of, uh, of London wickedness, you could put it that, but in a much milder sense. It's easy to look upon those who don't follow the Lord Jesus and think, well, their lives seem fine. They've got no qualms about paying cash in hand and saving themselves some money. They're certainly not giving any money to, to, to Christian work to advance the gospel. They've got more cash in their pockets. Uh, look, here I am, a Christian trying to do the right thing, but I look at him and think, well, his life is carefree, isn't it? It's not fair. So Asaph summarizes their lifestyle and says, well, this is what the wicked are like, verse 12. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And so 13 and 14, he summarizes how he felt. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. I was utterly demoralized, verse 13. What is the point in following God? If those who don't follow him, they have easier lives. What's the point in that? At verse 14, there's a personal edge to it. I have been afflicted. It's not just intellectual doubt here. This is not merely someone who says, well, I, I watch the news uh, and I, I, I see the treatment of ordinary citizens in, in Syria and think, well, that's not very good. Yeah, he may well do that. But the thing that makes him rage is what happens to him personally. You know, more miserable things on the news, oh, people's lives are tough, aren't they? But my life, that's what gets him, verse 14, I've been afflicted. This is not just doubt in the library. This is doubt on the streets of life. I'm experiencing, I feel it personally. So of course, just tangentially, it is worth observing that when doubts come, is, is, can Christianity be true? It's worth asking what, what else is going on in life. I, I ought to run a little full diagnostic here. Because often doubts come alongside, in, internal doubts come often from external circumstances. I'm sick. I'm out of work. I compare myself to others and feel hard done by. Uh, and that's when the internal doubts start to come up. Rarely is doubt merely an intellectual problem. It's circumstances that, that drive it. And so we can end up like Asaph here complaining. It's not fair. So doubts, if particularly perhaps if you're a Christian, doubts about the, the truth of Christianity, they are a mixture of the objective. There is a lot of suffering in the world. There is a lot of injustice in the world, isn't there? The objective and the subjective. How do I feel? How am I affected? That's what causes them. See, Asaph didn't like injustice, but his foot slipped when it affected him, when he felt envy, when he felt hard done by, when he felt that he was missing out. That's when his foot almost slipped. So the problem was he stared at the carefree wicked. But the second half, the turning point really, is, uh, comes at verse 15. So 15 to 28, uh, here's the solution, as it were, the resolution to his doubts, his envy. He stared at the truth of God, 15 to 28, okay? 
He stared at the truth of God. Now, there isn't the verb to saw, or he saw, or looked at, or stared in the second half, but I think that is the issue. There is a very obvious shift from verse 15. If, verse 15, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. All of a sudden, he's not just thinking about himself. He's thinking about other people. He's thinking about other responsibilities he's got. Uh, He says, I would have betrayed your children, Lord. Oh, well, that's new. Because that's the first time that Asaph has spoken of the Lord. Apart from the heading in verse 1, he comments upon what the wicked are saying. But really, verses 2 to 14, there are two groups for Asaph. Me and them. See, the first half of of the psalm, it's just how I feel about them. There's just these two groups. And so Asaph has got himself into a bit of a bubble. He doesn't see other people. He doesn't see the Lord. He just sees these two things, me and him, me and them. They're doing better than me. I'm fed up. He's just reduced everything down to that that sort of conflict between the two, as it were. I don't know if you watch or have seen any of the, uh, the show on TV, Billions. We quite like Billions. It's good telly. With the caveat, the language is pretty bad. Some of it's obviously it's all, it's all immoral, uh, but it's good TV. If I can say that. Um, so if you haven't seen it, two protagonists, obviously highly wealthy individuals, Manhattan individuals, Bobby Axelrod, Chuck Rhodes, they absolutely despise one another, and they want to win. And winning means beating the other putting them in prison or bankrupting them, and they sacrifice everything. Vast sums of money. Their marriage, gone. Relationship with parents, destroyed. Children, lost. Everything in order to beat the other man. They just the world just closes. It is caught up in this bubble. I will beat him. He will not beat me. It just reduced everything down. And there's a sense in which Asaph is similar here. I look at them, and they're doing better than me, and it's killing me. I'm really envious. I'm thinking, what is the point of being a Christian when he, they, are doing better than me. His whole world has shrunk down. But here at verse 15, there's a little change. Uh, there are other people involved. Uh, and Lord, there are, there are your children. And then verses 16 to 17, things really changed. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, that I understood their final destiny. Things change when he goes to the sanctuary. Now, he is not saying that a day at a luxury spa uh, in London, um, being pampered at the sanctuary, uh, will cure all your ills, although it sounds very pleasant. Uh, the sanctuary, the temple, the, the, the dwelling place, of church, in simple, simple terms. There he gained a fresh perspective. 
We're not told explicitly what happens when he went to the temple, the, the heart of, of Jerusalem's worship. He just says, I, I went there. We know that two things certainly would have happened when he went there because they were always going on. He, he would have heard the word of God and he would have met and sung with hundreds, maybe thousands of other believers. Certainly those two things would have taken place. He'd have heard the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God read, and he'd have met with plenty of other believers. Both of those things are always significant. I met up, spent some time last week uh, with a, a friend who, uh, someone who last October uh, lost his 16-year-old son with about 48 hours notice. Went from 100% healthy, no problems, to, to dead in, well, 36 hours. But devastating. The loss of a child, utterly devastating. And, uh, of course, they've been struggling, limping. Six and a bit months on. Uh, so we happened to catch up last week and, and chatting about all sorts of things, of course. But then, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Uh, about that, how are you adjusting, all sorts of things said. But he said, you know, the, the thing that's very clear to me is the two things that have made the most significant difference that have really helped me most. One, the promises of God. Two, friends who have drawn alongside to encourage. Those two things. Those two things have kept me going as a Christian, kept me going as a man, not just collapsed. Those two. What does he mean by that? One, the promises of God. I know I'll see my son again. I will see him again. We've said goodbye, but it's not permanent. I will see him again. The promises of God, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I don't understand that, but I can trust that because I know that God is a God who came and died in his son, Jesus Christ, for me. I know that Jesus came, and he died for all I've done wrong, and he's given me his status of perfect blessing, and he's exchanged those two things for me. I know that. I can trust a God who's done that. So I have the promises of God. And secondly, friends, the encouragement of friends who have reminded me of those promises who've sat with me when it hurts, who haven't judged me when I've been angry, who've just been there and said, keep going. Well, Asaph doesn't give us the details, but we know at least those two things would have been there in the temple, the word of God, promises, and others, other believers, to speak the truth to him. And there are times in the life of every Christian believer when you need someone to speak the truth to you because the word of Christ in your brother or sister is much stronger than the word in your own heart. It just is. But going to church, going to the sanctuary of God, that's what changed Asaph. And he says, when I went there, then, verse 17, then I understood their final destiny. The destiny of, well, who's they? Well, verse 18 says it must be the, the, the faithless, the wicked, 
Then I understood. Now, again, you could translate understood or considered might be a better translation of the Hebrew word because it's not that he never heard before. Do you know, Asaph, what happens when everyone dies? They stand before the living God and have to give an account of their lives. Oh, I never heard that before. No, he's a believer. He knows that. But now he considers it. He says, you know, that, that, that truth which I've known all my life, I dwelt upon it. And it changed things for me. And so it gave me a renewed outlook, orientation, well, upon a number of things, three little things really. It certainly gave him a new outlook upon the wicked, faithless. So verses uh, 18, 19, 20. Uh, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. Oh, yeah, now I've dwelt upon this truth about the future of those who are uh, oppressing, taunting uh, uh, the, the believers in Jerusalem. One day they'll die and they'll stand before you, Lord, and that's it. You'll reject them. They look so secure and their lives look so good, but one day they go and that's it. Oh, yeah, I remember that now. He dwells upon himself, or he gets a renewed uh, angle upon himself, verses 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I was, I was a beast. I was an animal. I wasn't thinking straight. Now, in English, we have lots of idioms for that, you know, for, for stupid animals. I was, what was I? I was like a bull in a china shop. I was a stubborn mule. I was pig-headed. Uh, all of those, sort of, you go on and on. Uh, I was a beast. I was thinking like an animal, I, not very intelligently. Because, verse 21, my heart was grieved. So he gets a new perspective upon those who are not believers, a new perspective upon himself. I wasn't thinking straight. And then a new perspective, crucially, upon the Lord. Verse 23 to 6. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here is a wonderful truth when you're slipping. Verse 23. The Lord is always with you if you're a Christian believer holding you. Uh, away then a few days last week, uh, we were on the beach down, down in Devon and it's one of those sort of um, steps down to the beach that when tide is up, they're completely covered and submerged and when tide goes out, uh, you can use the steps. But they're covered in, it's not seaweed, but you know that just sort of green slime. Uh, and, um, you know, it's those sort of, particularly when it's sort of, the, the tide has only recently got out, you sort of, you go down very gingerly uh, and you want someone actually to hold your hand because you observe one or two others go whoop uh, and uh, you think, well, it's all right for you, you're 10, you sort of bounce down the steps, but uh, when you're a little bit older, you bounce a little bit less. Um, so you think, ah, oh, uh, I will actually hold someone's hand. I'm not Donald Trump who feels the need to, you know, I'm not scared of stairs, uh, but uh, a, little, a little handrail just to go down, lovely. You know, sometimes you just want a bit of support when the ground is slippery. The Lord is there, never leaves his people. He guides. Verse 24, he will take 
those who've trusted in him into glory. Verse 25, it's a beautiful verse, famous verse. My flesh and my heart may fail. No may in there, it's just fail or are failing. My flesh and my heart fail, are failing. That is, physically, I will give out. I will lose strength. Emotionally, I give up at times. Physical and emotional failure. But God is two things. He's the strength of my heart. He gives me what I need emotionally. And he's my portion forever. That is wealth. Portions were given to the tribes of Israel. It's their land. It's their affluence. It's their future. It's their inheritance. I've never noticed before. Six times the heart is mentioned in Psalm 73. I think it is the key place of battle. Verse 21, my heart was embittered, grieved. My heart was failing. But God is the strength of my heart. Verse 26. See, the, the, the whole picture of this psalm is, I, I, was, I was just looking at the wicked. I was looking at those who reject the Lord and whose lives are good and going well. I, I looked at them and I, I, I thought, this is not right. I can't cope with this. But now... Now I'm looking at the Lord, and I get a perspective upon myself. I get a perspective upon eternity. Those who reject him are lost eternally. Whereas I have an inheritance, glory, to look forward to. And so in really, really very simple terms, when doubts come, Question, what will you look at? Will it be the Lord? Will you go to the sanctuary? Will you engage with his word and let others speak truth to you? Or will you just shrink yourself down into a little bubble of you and whatever the issue is? What will you choose to look at? For Asaph, because he went to the sanctuary, he stopped looking just at them, the wicked. He looked at God. And he learned, my enemies will be judged. God is with me. God will strengthen me. God will reward me. And so the summary of it all really comes in verses 27 and 28. Here's how you handle resentment at seeing that those who are immoral flourish. It doesn't last. Verse 27, Asaph says, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. The most important truth you'll ever work out in your life, the most important decision you ever take is where you stand in relation to the living God. Verse 28, as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. It's a big concept in the book of Psalms, 47 times, the Lord is a refuge. The book of Psalms opens, the, the gateway into the book is Psalms 1 and 2, the introduction combined together, and they say there, here's how you live the wise life. You make the sun your refuge. That is the beginning of all wisdom. You make the sun your refuge. And the book of Psalms would say, like the rest of Scripture, one day, all of us stand before the living God and give an account for everything that we've done wrong in our lives. And what we've done right, but what we've done wrong. 
and he will judge us on those things. And you need a place of refuge because none of us can stand on our own. Last Saturday, not yesterday, last Saturday night, all the photos of lightning, they were fantastic, weren't they? See the, the, the shot of lightning that hit the shard? It's just, you know, it's the sort of photo you take in a fluky moment and make millions from. It's a magnificent photo. When we stand before the Lord, we're struck, we're judged, we're assessed and all we've done wrong in life. And you need a place of refuge. And the heart of the Christian faith is take your refuge in the Son, Jesus Christ. Let him pay for all you've done wrong upon the cross. So you have an inheritance, you have glory ahead of you. And so Asaph says, that's what I'm, I've, I've remembered that. I've allowed that truth to shape my thinking again now. And so it's good. I'll tell of all your deeds. So don't dwell upon others in envy, he would say. Don't shrink your world right down. Look up. Know that Jesus Christ is holding your hand. He guarantees your future. He'll strengthen your heart. He's your reward. You take refuge in him. That's where you go to. Doubts will come. Many of us have significant doubts. Christians, not Christians, will have doubts. It's inevitable in this world. What do you do with them? You take refuge in the Son, Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, again, we say thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for the honesty of the Bible, your word. That in this psalm and the next few, here are the the questions of believers. How can it be? For Asaph here, how is it right that those who reject you and actually live immorally, how is it right that their lives are so good? Father, thank you for honesty. That's a question that many of us will ask, do ask, have asked. So would we look up? Would we look up and know that we have a refuge in Jesus Christ who guarantees eternal glory, inheritance, reward, whereas those who reject him are lost? Would we know that you're holding our hand, you're offering us counsel, that in you we have all we need. Father, help us to be honest with our doubts and take them to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.